welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money, and this is our weekly show for CCM Plus subscribers only. So if you're listening to this, that means you're subscribed. Thank you. One side note here, if you are on Apple and you want to get access to the Substack and the Google Drive, which is part of the subscription that we offer for free. Um, well, well, for, for the subscription price. It's on top, is it, it, yes, sorry, that's always hard to say. It is included in the subscription. Please send us an email with the email you want us to add you on because Apple does not share your emails with us and we cannot do it on our own. Email chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. That will be in the show notes as well. All right, let's get right into it. We have no advertisements on this episode. We're talking Uber. Uber Technologies, I guess is their name, but we'll call it Uber. Ryan, why don't you get right into it? This is a storied company and they do a lot and they have a really wide ranging history. Yeah, it's honestly a little frustrating to research companies like this because they do so much. It feels hard to um, discuss everything that I think is important within the hour or within the allotted time frame that we try to keep it within and it's hard to value uh, we'll get to that when we try to do that yeah it's, it was it was really hard to value um but i'll talk about the business lines that i think are important so they, they segment their they have a lot of different subsidiaries but they segment it into three areas so it's mobility delivery and freight and so mobility this is the original ride sharing service that Uber was built on. It's probably what most people are familiar with for Uber. I guess people are familiar with Uber Eats at this point as well. But yeah, I forget what the numbers were. Well, it was like 96% of Americans know that Uber, the ride sharing and delivery is pretty high, but not as high as that. Yeah. I mean, consumers pretty much anywhere in the world, they're, they're in t- more than 10,000 cities now, uh, can use the Uber app to connect with a network of drivers, which are independent contractors. The drivers are, they're not considered employees. That was a whole lawsuit in California. Um, and I, I think that's, I guess everyone probably has their own opinion, but I think that's probably for the best. Uh, and apparently a lot of the Uber drivers wanted that. They wanted to be considered independent contractors, but it also allows Uber to offload a lot of costs that they might have had to pay um, to the drivers instead. Like if if they're making improvements to their car, if they have to um, get a rental while they're putting their car in the shop or something like that, that's all paid for on the driver's side. Um, it's not, Uber doesn't have to front that cost since they're independent contractors. Anyways, um, the way it works, consumers pay for pay a price for each ride that varies depending on a number of factors. They have a pricing algorithm, which has also been the target of a lot of uh, lawsuits and complaints because it can be, I don't want to say predatory, but it, it. let's say you need a ride on New Year's Eve. I think at one point in... They were they were operating in the UK and the New Year's Eve rides were seven times the normal going price uh, because they know that people are out drinking and they know they can charge exuberant prices. So um, 
but they it fluctuates based on a bunch of different stuff whether that's fuel prices whether that is the the distance for the ride the demand at the time they have their algorithm for uh determining pricing and uh uber ends up taking a 25 percent service fee on that transaction that goes to them as a revenue the remainder goes to the driver um and then the segment also includes Uber's minority-owned affiliates. So uh, that includes DD, Grab, and Yandex.taxi. So a lot of these are basically international operations where either they didn't have the expertise to operate there or they legally weren't allowed to. Uh, they decided to purchase or invest in companies that were doing similar things. And so the second segment that I'll talk about is delivery. Deliveries quickly become a pretty meaningful driver for Uber's business since the onset of the pandemic. I believe Uber Eats has tripled its revenue since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, this is very simple. Most people know what it is. You c- Consumers can search for restaurants, order a meal, have it delivered to their respective location by a driver that's on Uber's network. Um, in certain locations, consumers can also order groceries, alcohol, or other convenience store goods. And with delivery, consumers pay fees to Uber but and the driver, but the, the merchant also uh, gives a percentage of each order to Uber depending on which pricing plan they choose. So let's say you're a restaurant you don't get to use uber eats for free um that i mean that adds a lot of potential volume for you as a restaurant uh the premium pricing plan you give up 30 percent of each order um so it's a decent chunk and and restaurants have complained about that as well but uh i mean it's it's kind of a sacrifice for higher value we'll talk about we'll probably we'll discuss later whether we think it's sustainable or not uh inserting uber and the drivers into the in a lot of these restaurant um cost chains i guess is the best way to put it yeah and a lot of companies what they do is they just basically mark up their price on uber eats um to kind of alleviate or keep some level of profitability on those orders and then the last segment is freight so uber spray offering tries to leverage or it says it leverages its core network and connection platform to help shippers find carriers carriers so let's say you're a medium-sized business you need to ship some cargo across the country or maybe state to state something like that uh you can go on uber's freight offering and connect to different carriers so um the, the compelling part for the carrier side is demand curation. So a lot of carriers will have what they call deadhead miles where they're in between ship shipments and they're not carrying any cargo. This allows them to plug in, hopefully find some local shipments that are needed that are on their close to their desired route. And they can just basically get more demand from that. And then from the shipping side, it's pretty obvious, uh, you know, you can ship your goods and connect to a platform of carriers to do that. The other one, um, the other important part of this last year they acquired Transplace, which was literally basically what uber freight wanted to uh, be yeah a little bit it's more they go more into the like analytics side so it's kind of you would use both i think a bit as well but they also do the managed services so it's like <laughs> trying to expand them a bit down and up into basically everything that you would need for analytics and software if you're a shipper or a carrier and that cost $2.25 billion in cash. They were able to get a lot of that cash from investors um, to, to front some of that. But that's basically become a big staple of their freight off right now. And it's bolted on a lot of revenue. So if you yeah. saw a big jump up in revenue, no, some of that is probably inorganic. That's the basics of the overall business. The two biggest components are delivery and mobility. They're, they're obviously still uh, investing in freight, but it's a smaller 
percentage of the business. Uh, and then uh, as far as history goes, I think Uber has probably the most iconic Silicon Valley founding story in recent history that I think they, they pretty much, if they didn't pioneer, they embody the move fast and break things approach. And it's been uh, controversial throughout pretty much ever since the beginning. Um, but to kind of give some context for anyone who hasn't heard of their founding story, I also recommend going and reading the book. It's super pumped, right? Yeah, we'll make sure. Yeah, let's put that in the reference link. To reference again, that is what you get uh, as a part of the written stuff to go along with the show. Uh, all the sources we had for the episode and anything we think for further reading, we'll put there. So we'll put that book down there. Yeah, the company was founded in 2008 kind of 2009 timeframe by two friends, Travis Kalanick and Garrett Camp. The two of them had prior success in tech as well. So um, I believe Travis Kalanick sold his company for $19 million and Garrett Camp sold it for $75 million to eBay. Uh, and Garrett Camp was still working as CEO of the company under eBay, whereas Kalanick basically just left. And after they sold their companies, they were at a tech conference in Paris, which I feel like <laughs> all good ideas start at tech conferences abroad. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they could not get a cab that night. So they had this wonderful epiphany to basically be able to request rides from your phone. And I heard another founding story that someone tried, they tried to, it cost like 800 bucks or something for them, not even this night. And they were like, this needs to be solved with the mobile phone. Yeah. Either way, it's basically the two of them kind of came up with this idea together. They kind of sat on it while they came back to San Francisco, but Garrett Camp was pretty enamored with the idea, maybe more so than Kalanick at the start. And so he bought the domain name ubercab.com and basically got Kalanick to join in on the idea by naming him chief incubator. Um, oh boy. And I, from stories that I've read, uh, he was literally like basically just used his house in San Francisco to like uh, bring developers in and kind of let them work for Uber in that house. He they was, had a lot. Of, yeah, they had a lot of that in that book. Yeah. Basically, if you've watched the show Silicon Valley, this is kind of what the character Ehrlich Bachman is based upon, I think. Probably something similar. Oh, yeah. And a mix of other characters. Yeah. 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 And uh, anyway, in 2010, they officially launched in San Francisco. They also named Travis Kalanick the CEO at that time as well. Um, and it was basically, it was a black car service or they almost at the start, they wanted it to be an on-demand limo service. So it was kind of for higher end customers, more uh, people that could, could afford a higher priced ride. And then they quickly rolled out UberX, which was more affordable. Uh, but the, the idea took off pretty quickly. And I think San Francisco was probably the perfect place to launch at the time. I think a lot of people were like willing to experiment with new technology in that area. And so Uber took off, gained a lot of steam, earned or got tons of venture capital money. And I mean, tons, maybe more so other than Stripe, I can't think of another company that's gotten more. Maybe WeWork. Oh, yeah. WeWork got that $4 billion crazy thing from SoftBank. But Uber got, didn't they get an $8 billion? It's not really relevant today, but. They may have. They Well, in 2015, so five years after their founding, six years, they got a, a valuation round or they were valued at $51 billion. Um, after a funding round that included the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. So yeah, they they attracted money from pretty much every investor. I think Bezos at one point even invested um, it 
there the list goes on of people that became there's plenty of notable notable investors that were uh involved in sort of their funding rounds um and then with that money came a lot of reckless behavior behavior so they were pretty known for throwing wild parties one point they brought beyonce on for a corporate event and they paid her i believe it was six million dollars worth of restricted stock units to perform and this is at when they rented out a vegas hotel too i believe for like the 10x ride parties it was like the 10 millionth ride or maybe a billionth ride i can't remember yeah they're they were known for wild parties uh and they also were ordered to stop service in several of their markets by regulators, which they basically refused and kept going. Um, so that was kind of the move fast, break things approach. Um, and you could, you could say that Uber had its reasons to do that. Um, but and anyway, they, they, they didn't really, it, it felt to them, it seemed like that they were above the law at this point. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with the reputation they'd gained and a lot of the momentum they were probably feeling from their community in San Francisco. And How, selling rides for four bucks. <laughs> so yeah. everyone wanted them. Yeah. And they, there were the, the part that kind of sucks is there were tons of scandals that went along with it. So the culture, the workplace culture was essentially several accusations of sexist and hostile workplace environments. Um, at one point, there was like a 3,000 word blog post from someone at the company that sparked an investigation that essentially said 20 executives or not executives, 20 staff members need to leave. There needs to be all these different changes in place. Kalanick resigned after a video went viral of him like basically getting in an argument with an Uber driver. Yeah, at least he was in an Uber, but yeah, the there was something. Uh, yeah. He was out. Yeah. Shareholders pretty much asked him to leave at that point. And so they hired um, Dara two months later. Kos Roshahi. Kos Roshahi. Thank you. Uh, Two months later, they hired Dara Kos Kos Roshahi. And he had been the CFO at IEC for several years and the CEO of Expedia Group. Sounds like they did not have a hard time finding a new CEO. Um, Fast forward two more years to 2019. They go public. Made made a name for themselves by being the largest single day loss in dollar terms uh, of any IPO in history. So not a great IPO, um, but they did still raise a ton of money. And I, I I'm blanking on the valuation there, but that was 2019. They've since come down a pretty significant amount. Um, and I'll, I'll get to that. But why don't you hit industry and landscape? Yeah, industry, it's interesting. We'll talk industry and competition. They outline in their recent investor day, their total addressable markets. And when you're listening to this, you might laugh, but that's how they, they think of their business in gross bookings. So you really have to um, just look at these and kind of divide by, I don't know, divide by 10 or something like that for the total market and revenue that they're actually going after. And in reality, a lot of these are exaggerated. But first up in mobility, they think there's a $5 trillion total addressable market. And this is defined as all passenger vehicle and transportation trips in 175 countries. Again, do with this what you will. Um, Their likely actual addressable market is probably closer to maybe a trillion dollars or $500 billion. But again, if they get everyone to give up car ownerships, who knows? Maybe they'll hit that $5 trillion mark. And eliminate all public transportation or get all public transportation on Uber. 
But either way, delivery, they also estimate at $5 trillion, and that is defined as global spend on retail restaurants and grocery delivery, which is one of their big growth drivers they're trying to do to compete with Instacart and DoorDash and others. Um, again, they're only going to take a small take rate of this, so they're never going to have $5 trillion in revenue from this. But the the serviceable addressable market or the actual addressable market is probably closer to maybe $500 billion uh, globally for the markets they're trying to serve uh, in a gross bookings perspective, and then revenue will be a lot less. And then freight, again, it sounds like a broken record, but they say $4 trillion here, and that is defined as the global logistics cost. So unless they actually start doing everything in the value chain for logistics, which we can say is a 0% chance of happening, they're not actually going after a $4 trillion. That is the gross bookings target, I guess. And in reality, it's probably a lot lower. But either way, I think the big takeaway is they have huge vision for the total amount of dollars flowing through their platform. And all three of their markets are quite large if they can convince consumers to adopt these um, ride sharing, food delivery, grocery delivery, and for the freight, um, basically having mobile first, not going going away from pen and paper, all that good stuff. Now, if we look at competitors, as many people probably know, there are a ton in mobility. There's Lyft in the United States, Ola in India. I saw a rumor that today, so it was kind of interesting for the show that Uber was rumored to be thinking of buying out Ola or doing a deal with them, which is not surprising given they do deals so much. Uh, there's Didi, which is the Chinese one that they had a big deal with uh, to swap shares, I think. Um, they're in Asia, Australia, and Latin America. There's Gojek in Southeast Asia. There's Grab in Southeast Asia, and many other smaller ones in delivery. There's DoorDash in the US. There's Instacart in the US. There's Grubhub in the US. There's Deliveroo and other uh, just eat takeaway companies in Europe. And then there's Rappi, which is a big one in Latin America. And then with freight, I know there's a ton of information for this year, but it's because they're trying to do so much. There is CH Robinson. There's Total Quality. There's XBO Logistics. These are the three big legacy, I guess you would describe them, um, marketplaces or carriers or whoever that they describe in the 10K uh, under their risk factors. Uh, another thing they're competing with in freight is really the status quo of small pen and paper companies. They say there are about, I think it was, it's over 10,000, but I believe the number was 17,000 of these companies within the connecting and you know connecting shippers and carriers or doing shipping and all that stuff. So there's a lot of fragmentation here that they're trying to connect and you can see where they're trying to go after it. Um, there's also a lot of smaller startups in the freight software space. Not really any of that broken through, but and Uber's definitely the leader, but there is a ton of Amazon people. would be a part of that too. I guess. Yeah, exactly. But that's more vertically integrated. They don't do anything with really anyone else, at least at the moment. Um, and with software, yeah, there's a lot of VC dollars flowing into the space. Just something to note. People have kind of seen how successful Uber Freight has been, and they're trying to go after that same sort of market. All right, let's hit management, ownership, and compensation. As Ryan mentioned, the CEO is Dara Khosrowshahi. I'll just call him Dara from here on out. He, they were brought in, he was brought in after the Kalanick scandals. Um, yeah, Ryan already mentioned all the rest of that there. CFO, Chief Financial Officer is Nelson Chai, C-H-A-I. He was brought in again at around the same time in 2018. Looks to be kind of a mercenary to help steer the company towards a public offering and just being more professional. Because Define what you mean as mercenary for anyone. That oh, mercenary is just an outsider that has experience 
and is just coming in to professionalize it okay. and do a job, uh, you know, mercenary. Uh, he has experience in the finance and insurance markets. So not a big technology background. You can kind of see why they wanted to go that route, given the scandals going on at the time. And he still stayed at the company till this day. Uh, there are a total of 10 executive officers, according to the company's IR page. Not that important, but I think it's kind of interesting to note that they have 10 total. Uh, they have a chief legal, which is very important for them. They have a chief people officer. Now, if we look at the board of directors, their compensation was $3.4 million in 2021. And I'm adding this these new metrics here because when we talk about compensation, I want to reference it to how much money the company is actually generating. So if we look at board uh, compensation, it was only 0.055% of last That's year's half, 2021. Half of a percent. Yeah, uh, half of a 0.1 of a percent. So really, okay. really negligible of their 2021 contribution profit, which is just gross profit minus operations and support. So I wanted to put that in because with Warby Parker, when we just did them, we talked about how egregious executive compensation, or excuse me, board compensation was for them, for a company of that size. Uh, but we didn't put any numbers to it. I want to do that now. Now, lastly, let's go to executive compensation. It is based on these three different factors. One, 20% of the performance restricted stock units for the executive team is based on diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. Second, annual cash bonuses are based on 20% for gross bookings growth, 40% for adjusted EBITDA, and then the rest on some kind of strange metrics that are hard to parse out for this uh, podcast. Generally, most of the compensation is either based on revenue slash bookings growth, adjusted EBITDA, or diversity inclusion, or excuse me, equity and inclusion goals. Total executive compensation was $52.8 million in 2021, or 0.85% of 2021 contribution profit. Now, if we look at the shareholder table that we have here, pretty basic. Uh, a lot of the VCs and Kalnick have all sold out. So we have Morgan Stanley as a 5% owner. But besides that, no 5% owners. Dara owns 0.096% of the company. I have an error there. Let me correct it quick. Yeah, 0.096% of the company. And then an associate with the Saudi Arabia Wealth Fund owns... Okay, well, he's listed there, but it's the Saudi fund that owns it. They own 3.73% of the company. I think that is important to note. And they've invested several times throughout Uber's history. They were one of the financiers of the recent TransPlace acquisition. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's that important, but just the influence of the Saudi fund is kind of something to note. Maybe to keep in the back of your mind, make sure they're not trying to do anything because we know they can be uh, feisty, I guess is a good word. Um a little bit unpredictable, the Saudi fund. If we go to the last note I have here, and I think this is kind of the big takeaway, or yeah, I think the biggest takeaway here for a compensation is that the board and executive compensation are based on suspect metrics. We don't like, you know, compensation based on revenue growth. I don't like it based on adjusted EBITDA. Uh, basing compensation on diversity, equity, and inclusion seems a bit misaligned because you can have those goals, but I don't think you should be, you know, it shouldn't be part of your salary, but the size of the compensation for these executives is not that egregious relative to the size of the company and how much contribution profit. Um, I know we can't talk about actual cash flow because they're unprofitable, but how much kind of gross profit they're generating. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. 
Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, Ryan, do you want to hit earnings? Yeah, I will. I, I will say that relative to some of the other companies we've looked at recently and kind of relative to my own expectations going in, executive compensation and board compensation was not nearly as bad as I thought it'd be. Just the just the metrics. That's the only real beef I found. Right. Uh, as for earnings over the last 12 months, they've done $21.4 billion in revenue. That was up basically double from the 12 months prior. However, they are lapping some of the COVID effects, which there was way like volume and rides decreased substantially during those periods. I don't know if anyone ever tried to get an Uber during those periods, but um, it was it was somewhat difficult and a lot of people yeah. were reluctant to do it. Mask mandates and a lot of drivers, both drivers and consumers were reluctant. And then they had 36% gross margins during that period and roughly negative $2 billion in EBITDA, which was basically minus 9% EBITDA margin. However, it's been a gradual improvement out of COVID in terms of both, well, both on the revenue standpoint and profitability, although there isn't necessarily any true profits to write home about yet. um, It has certainly been trending in the right direction. So in the most recent quarter, they had $26.4 billion in gross bookings. Brett talked about why that's an important metric for the company. That was up 35% year over year. So still pretty strong, pretty solid growth. $6.9 billion in revenue up 136%. They increased the price of their rides on average by a pretty fat margin. And Did they say the percentage or is that just... Well, that's just me guessing because um, revenue outpaced trips gotcha. by a lot. And part of that is because of the fuel costs associated with it, but also I imagine just overall cost increases as well. Um, but the revenue composition for the quarter, 37% came from mobility, 37% from delivery, and now 26% from freight that was previously much lower, um, but it, it's since come up a bit thanks to that TransPlace acquisition. They had 115 million monthly active platform customers. That grew 17. <laughs> I don't know why they don't just say customers. Their yeah. metrics are insane. <laughs> yeah. The 115 million customers grew 17% on the year, $15 million in operating cash flow. They know. There is operating cash flow. Um, however, they had about $360 million in stock based compensation. So on a per share basis, I mean, I guess cash flow is better than no cash flow, but uh, it's negligible. Um, and they do report some adjusted EBITDA numbers that exclude. So they give you segment adjusted EBITDA, um, which does not include their corporate general and administrative expenses, research and development, which really is a part of 
each segment because the R and D yes. is focused on those segments. They are but dangerous. They are dangerous uh, metrics to look at. Yeah. If you look at it on a pure, purely, let's say you cut G and A and R and D to the bone per segment, each one is adjusted EBITDA positive. But the only one that I would say is really like seems like it's generating actual cash. potential cash yeah. would be the mobility business. Their adjusted EBITDA number as a percentage of revenue was 25%. So I think they, that that business is getting to maturity and getting to the point where I think it can generate positive margins uh, for the company. The uh, Let me, we'll include this chart in the show notes that we send out on the Substack. but I did a chart of other expenses, which is the one that Ryan's talking about, the stuff that they don't include for freight delivery or mobility costs. And this historically included autonomous vehicles, but they divested that into a separate company called Aurora. So as a percentage of gross bookings in 2018, it was 5.4%. In 2019, it was 4.9%. In 2020, it was 4.5%. And in 2021, due to that divestiture of the, and, and others, and the right sizing of costs, uh, was only 2.1%. So those other expenses, that stuff that they're not including is actually getting much smaller as a percentage of gross bookings. So it's trending in the right direction. However, yes, it is dangerous to just look at those segment adjusted EBITDA numbers. Now, I'm going to dive into the balance sheet and liquidity, but I feel like we've been throwing a lot of numbers at listeners, which is kind of, I know, difficult to digest in this format. So I'll, I'll try to basically just summarize it. Their balance sheet is a little tricky, not only because they have um, added debt in recent years, but there's an insurance arm to their business. And so it's a little difficult to know what cash needs to be what 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 their cash requirements are for some of those elements but i'll go through the assets so they have about four billion dollars in unrestricted cash and cash equivalents that's true cash they have 6.2 billion dollars worth of investments last year that was 11.8 billion so it's been more than halved and that that value is comprised of equity and debt securities in a bunch of privately held companies. We've talked about all the investments and different share swaps that they do with international companies. That's a part of this. Um, and given that a lot of that value comes from Uber's own judgment and discretion, it seems like they're being relatively transparent since they've marked it down by 50% over the last year. Yeah. And some of these are public. Again, it's not really relative relevant to the show, but you know, some of them are public. I believe... The- well, Didi's a mess, but uh, I don't know if that's ever going to be worth anything. But that that might be public. Grab is public, um, but some of them are private. If you're including these in your valuation, I would be very conservative on the investment side. I would take maybe half of their investment value. <laughs> but what does that mean about the value of Uber's own business? That's because they're basically copycats. But I guess that's a whole other question. Yeah, well, uh, it's just given the risk of some of these business models. Um, And then they have $624 million worth of equity method investments. I believe that is attributable to their share of income or losses from Yandex.taxi, which is another one of their international investments. And that's Russia. So gosh, it's so confusing with all these. So they have Russia and China exposure, which is just tough with those investments. Uh, Yeah, I think they're pretty much have exposure nearly everywhere in the globe. Um, and then they have $3.4 billion of restricted cash held as collateral for insurance policy. So that's kind of the asset side. And I'll try to, I'll try to summarize it towards the end, but then on the liability side, they have nine, just over $9 billion in total debt. Almost all of it 
well, all of it is long-term. All the debt is due between 2025 and 2030, and most of the debt comes in the form of senior notes. There is a little bit that's convertible, and they've refinanced some that are due a little uh, earlier, uh, but the rates vary widely, and they're pretty much all fixed rate, at least on the senior notes. Some of the, the highest interest rate is 8.1%, lowest interest rate, not the refinanced ones, is uh, 4.7%. Not crazy, um, but that's a big amount of debt relative to not only the cash that they have on hand, but the cat, well, the theoretical cash that they can generate. So there is a lot of cash flow that's going to be going to these debt holders over the next, I think the last, it re- they really start paying it back in 2025, 2026, and, and beyond up to 2030. A lot of that, a lot of the cash they generate over that time is going to go to those debt holders. And there's a high interest expense. Right. And they, uh, the, the four point, which, which is important because they report, uh, EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Interest is a big expense for them. I think they did about 500 million. I think they had $500 million in interest expense last year. It could, I assume it'll probably go up this year. Um, so I would include that. And then, the only other big ass or liabilities, their insurance reserves, uh, $4.1 billion there. They use, I am definitely not uh, used to reading an insurance balance sheet. I'm by no means great at we, assessing insurance companies. You will not see us covering insurance on this show. You'll have to go elsewhere. Yeah, but Uber uses a combination of third-party insurers and its own in-house insurance subsidiary to provide auto insurance on behalf of its drivers. So that's basically what you have to know. The only thing they really cover is crash or crashes for their drivers. Um, and it, sometimes it's not even them covering. Sometimes it's those third parties. Um, but a lot of the drivers also have um, ride sharing insurance provided by their actual insurer. Uh, a lot of insurance companies, auto insurers have began including that. Um, not all of them, but some of them. And so th- there is... It just complicates the balance sheet because it's a meaningful part. However, they are able to diversify it across a ton of drivers. I don't think it's not catastrophe insurance. So it's fairly predictable. Yeah, you're you're getting a little, little more predictability there. And then to kind of sum it up, let's assume Uber did a billion dollars in EBITDA this year. I, I think some of the estimates had them doing like just over a billion, according to S&P Global. Um, for reference, they did 420 million in adjusted EBITDA over the first two quarters of the year, and it's starting to ramp up a bit. Um, well, sorry, they will if they meet their guidance for the second quarter. I think they're about to report. Um, if they did that, they'd have a 9.3 times debt to EBITDA ratio, depending on how that grows. Uh, that, that's a lot of debt. Uh, and their EBITDA is very unpredictable. Like their true cash that they're generating enough that to pay off debt is it's hard to see because they don't really tell you transparently um and their ebitda figure is kind of smoke and mirrors so um know that debt is a big part of this equation Uh, they'll be able to liquidate investments if need be but again that's just not ideal and they want to be able to invest in growth for a lot of these segments so it just could put them in a pinch if they're not generating cash yeah i if you're reading the newsletter i say they've got 11 billion dollars 
that's that's the number I came out to in cash esque value, because a lot of the investments, let's say they're debt securities, you can't just you might not be able to find a buyer or even the equity securities. Let's say you started selling, you probably have such a large percentage of those businesses internationally that you're going to decrease the own. Your and own is DD and is DD worth anything? Yeah, it's a very important question uh, because. Maybe maybe you should just X out all investments when you're doing valuation. <laughs> that would be, uh, we'll see. And they also have an investment in Lime, which is clearly at zero. Did they not <laughs> divest that? Oh, they might have divested that. It's so confusing, um, but they may have divested that. Yeah. Anyway, tricky balance sheet, lots of debt. Um, certainly yeah. a part of the equation. Here. Yeah, you can really come up with a lot of your own enterprise values here, which moves into valuation. I have the dynamic valuation linked there for anyone reading the newsletter. Market cap. billion, ticker is U-B-E-R, just their name, enterprise value. And I'm just taking everything at face value there from the latest 10Q is about $43.6 billion. Now, the metrics I'm using here, because they don't generate cash, I'm going to be using contribution profit, which is my own definition of taking gross profit minus operation and support costs, because operation and support costs are going to scale with revenue, most likely. Um, So I'm doing an EV to contribution profit uh just ratio and that is seven so fairly decent not too bad and then i'm going to do an ev to free cash flow assuming they convert three percent of their gross bookings to free cash flow they do not right now like we've mentioned but this is around what management's long-term goal is so i kind of want to you know at today's price at what the cash that management says they're going to generate their ev to free cash flow would be about 16. So not crazy either, but again, you kind of ma- it makes sense that they have this discount because they haven't proven th- that they've been able to generate this cash. And lastly, potentially dilutive securities outstanding, which are stock options, RSUs, blah, 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 all that stuff are about 100 million at the end of 2021 or around 5% of total shares outstanding at the time. They're pretty heavy on SBC, not terrible anymore, but I would expect, and it's hard, there's always a range here, maybe two to 3% dilution going forward. Um, and that's just part of your valuation framework. All right. Okay. Anecdotal evidence. Let's get to the fun stuff. Yeah, I was going to say too many numbers. Ryan, what do you, what do you think? I mean, everyone has an opinion on Uber, but. I like, I like Uber service. Um, I use it whenever I have to, let's say I'm going out to bars or, uh, might be drinking. I'm, that's I'm the easiest. Yeah. It. If, if, yeah, the replacing the DD is the designated driver is just, that's the easiest yeah. product for them. It's. It's a cost that I'm more than, I mean, the prices have certainly gone up recently. So it's been a lot more, I'm very reluctant to do a lot of Ubering by myself since you have to front that cost. You usually want to split that between multiple people. Yeah. Um, I wonder, I I do try to, I I typically price compare between Uber and Lyft. I have them in the same little folder in my phone. Same. Um, same. And they're typically very similar prices. So if they're just, very similar prices. I'll go with Uber, but most of the drivers that I know drive both Uber and Lyft and they've got both little tags on their cars. So uh, I guess maybe I have a little more trust for Uber, um, but I've never had like a horrible experience. We had, the, we had a Lyft that was a bad experience at the Berkshire meeting. It just kept driving by us, but <laughs> that's not Lyft's fault. Yeah, That's, that's part of the whole process. Uh, I will say, I this is kind of more theory, but as the Uber prices have gone up, I mean, it, they, it feels like they've gone up 
maybe double what they were last year, typical Uber price. That's kind of just anecdotal. Um, my excitement to maybe go out or maybe my encouragement to stay home has kind of got like, I, I kind of feel more encouraged to go home. So VCs have been subsidizing your partying, huh? I wonder if there's an inverse correlation between the price of Ubers and demand for drinks. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> when, I mean, when they were f- uh, five bucks, it was, you know, it's basically free if you're splitting, splitting stuff. I don't know why I say five bucks, it was probably 20 bucks for a long one. And you split that between multiple people. It's not that much money. It's like half a drink. Um, yeah, I don't know. All right. My anecdotal evidence, I rarely use them just airport and uh, designated driver stuff. Really? Uber is a better product in my mind though. I don't know why I think this, but I do. Uh, that's probably why they have higher market share. Um, also anecdotally, they talk about convincing people to give up car ownership as being one of their long-term goals and how they can service that gigantic mobility TAM. I think the path to convincing people to do that has just a ton of hurdles that is going to make it extremely, extremely unlikely. I don't like the prices of their rides. Well, <laughs> that's one hurdle. It's way more costly to just drive Uber everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's not when they run the studies, it's not that much more, but you're giving up the freedom of having the car ownership. I mean, the key thing is you can't do a long car ride. It's just way more difficult. You're giving up that. I mean, it's not that much more expensive if you're just going around a city. I guess obviously it depends what car you're on too, but yeah. All right. Future growth opportunities, Ryan. I think, and this is more. Well, you have, you have an slime. activist future growth opportunity. Dispose of international investments and downsize. I know that's probably the lamest growth opportunity I could think of, but it's the most practical way for them to get to a reasonable level of profitability. Um, you you tweeted this out, and I saw it in their 10K, but they have um, 29,300 employees. I know. I'm going to put a chart in of their employee count uh, in the Substack. I know we mentioned that a ton, but just want to throw that out there because it is part of the stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry if this sounds inconsiderate, but there's no way they need that much. For reference, I think some comparable companies, you could say size-wise, yeah, size yeah. Square, Shopify, Spotify. I'd say they're all similar in terms of what I think would be empl- employee needs and the the size of their market caps and maybe revenue bases they all have less than 10,000 shopify i think has like right around 10,000 but they're laying off 10% of their workforce square and spotify are around 5 and 6,000 i think square's a little or spotify is a little higher now but there's again. no reason that uber maybe i'm wrong but i don't think they need roughly 30,000 employees um and then on top of that they definitely don't need all these pointless international investments. You don't have to have exposure everywhere in the globe. Exactly. Yeah. Who it cares makes it... if someone wins China and you don't, and you're not a part of it? Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. It... Uh, and it makes sense. Yeah. I don't know what the employees are doing. Frankly, I don't know what a lot of employees are doing at a lot of companies. And I say that I don't want people to lose their jobs, but as an investor, that's the hat you have to wear. And okay. And I know they just invested a whole bunch of money into freight, but, and maybe the, maybe Transplace kind of changes the economics of that, but I don't think freight is a necessary vertical for them to have either. Ooh, hot take. I think I disagree. I think it's pretty promising, but it is speculative a bit. I mean, they got a decent amount of bookings under management. You know, they have a lot of large companies. All um, from trans 
place. Okay. Well, no, I mean, let me look at, I have something in my notes here, a little quote from the investor day. Um, blah, blah, blah. Where is it? Okay. We now serve more than a hundred of the fortune 500 shippers, five out of the top five beverage companies and nine out of the top 10 CPG companies. Okay. But this the, seems not promising. exclusively. Sure. Sure. Like they're probably getting one or two of those deadhead miles or getting a, a, the deadhead routes, but maybe spin off Uber freight. I don't know. It, and if they're just subsidizing costs like they did early on, just to me, you have potentially proven economics with your mobility and delivery. I don't know if you need freight. Well, there's, or at least okay, wait until look, you are generating enough cash to to invest in okay, something like let's that. Let's not get too aggressive here. If they just stopped Uber freight, that would be destroying a lot of shareholder value. But I maybe the spin be increasing cash flow. It would it would I think definitively destroy a lot of shareholder value. Why do you say that? Because they've invested a lot of money into it. Okay, yeah. And they have a lot of bookings under management. They put in all that work. If you just destroy it, you know, that's that's just making matters worse. What if it's just hemorrhaging cash? Uh, it's not. It's it's uh well yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're they're okay, look, their 2021 freight adjusted EBITDA margin was only negative six percent. Again, that's not a great number, and but that that's is excluding a ton sure. of probably real cost. It's the only one that isn't real adjusted. It's the only one that isn't adjusted EBITDA like truly positive. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, they're on the right path. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what it looks like two to three years. All from right. Now. What's your growth opportunity? Mine is advertising. This is the favorite part or my favorite part of this business. Um, they believe they can hit $1 billion in the segment by 2024 and it should have way higher margins and less operating hiccups. These are including in-car advertisements, uh, promotions on Uber Eats, and promotions on Uber Eats from restaurants are definitely the biggest one here, at least right now. And then other stuff they're working on, like just in-app stuff. Um, you got 100 million plus monthly active users. There's potential here. The food one makes a ton of sense. Uh, the segment is quite small right now. Uh, they don't break it up, but I think they're doing like 200 to 300 million in revenue this year. But if scaled, it could really give them operating flexibility and I think a price advantage versus competitors. Because if Lyft doesn't have advertisements and then Uber can offer a slightly lower price and still make a profit, that could be a huge advantage for them. Yeah. All right. Highlights and lowlights, Ryan. Uh, highlights for me is the brand notoriety. I think Uber is essentially a verb at this point. And we talked about it for some reason when it comes to Uber and Lyft, we just choose Uber assuming price parity. Uh, it's pretty much a duopoly, at least in my local market between those two. Um, and so there is something to be said for the actual brand. The other thing, uh, they, they've shown an ability to raise prices without decreasing the number of trips. Number of trips is up 17% year over year this quarter and prices uh, certainly grew as well. Um, so testament, I guess, to the pricing power, how much higher can that go? I don't know. First, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big conundrum for them. Do they focus on trying to get as many people to adopt the platform as possible, or do they go for the most popular, rich, basically rich people that can afford it if it's expensive? Yeah. And then low lights for me, um, I, I think management's capital allocation decisions and the lack of focus have been very frustrating to watch. Um, we didn't even mention Drizzly and Drizzly. Corner Shop. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they, it's they've acquired and divested so many businesses. It's like actually really hard to keep track of. Um, and then it also feels like they're way overemployed. I already mentioned that. I don't see also why they need to spend thirty-two percent of their gross profit on sales and marketing. 
why you you're a brand that everyone knows. The I mean, I would assume I think they're the afraid. biggest bulk of that. They're afraid. They're afraid I, to stop. I think the bulk of that sales and marketing spend is probably discounts to Uber Eats Fair. I'd customers. Agree. I'd agree. Yeah. Which leads to my next low light. I think delivery is super competitive. I think it's kind of commoditized and you have to reacquire customers constantly because if DoorDash gives me a $20 coupon, and I've literally gotten this from Uber Eats, I got a $25 coupon just yeah. for no reason to just they send come back to, on. They send it to the email constantly or the notification. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, I'll do it, but I'm not going to order it constantly. I'll just order when you keep giving me coupons and I'll go to the next platform if they do the same. Mm-hmm. We also have seen the Grubhub thing with Amazon, which anecdotally, I talked about this on the Power Hour. I don't know if anyone listening to this listens to both, but I thought it was a good idea from Amazon, but I didn't use Grubhub. I think it's been like a month now, maybe a few weeks. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to cancel it. Even though they're giving me huge discounts on food delivery, it just doesn't, again, yeah. I'm in agreement with you here. Food delivery is just not, as good of a business at all. No, I, I agree. I mean, you can make the case that freight could be a good business and you kind of made that, but really it's, it's more mobility here is the only one I think is like, well, it's a smart model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was uh, about what I was going to say. All right. My highlights, I have a lot of low lights. I wanted to write them all down, but I don't know if I'm going to talk about all, all of them. I'll go through them quickly. Highlights. I think there's a clear network effect on the mobility side delivery. Eh, we just talked about that with freight, tons of promise, but early days. Um, Dara seems to have a solid head on his shoulders, although they've been loose with the capital allocation. Uh, but he had a super tall task, you know, right-sizing the business after the 20 from the 2017-2018 period where they were just doing crazy things. And then he had the wrench with COVID-19. They came out alive and that, you know, <laughs> That's something. I, I like Dara. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe that should have been a highlight. I, I think he's a decent CEO. Yeah. Well, at least I got to mention it here. Um, they've made cons- another one of my highlights is they've made consistent progress on cash burn over the last few years, coming from the divestitures, divestitures, and employee costs. Still a long way to go here because they aren't consistently generating cash. Um, I like the advertising product. We talked about that and Uber One, which is their subscription for ten dollars a month to kind of give you a comprehensive. Uh, I don't want to say prime like, but just discounts across stuff, less fees. That feels like a good way to reduce churn across their uh, customer base. However, I'm not sure how important it can be relative to their market size. And then last highlight is the legal and regulatory barriers to entry should give them a little bit of an insulation, a little bit of a competitive advantage now for anyone that's trying to start up. Uh, low lights. I have a lot. I don't know if I'm going to say all of them here. Uh, big ones though, they are exposed to energy cost, uh, fuel, and they are exposed to labor inflation from their drivers. The high, uh, I guess an example I have here is the higher the minimum wage in an Amazon warehouse in an area, the higher the hurdle it is to join Uber and start earning money. Second low light, and this kind of ties into that, the turnover from drivers has been abysmally high. They don't give out the numbers, but a lot of third-party data says almost all of them quit after a year. So you're constantly turning over. You're constantly having to acquire drivers. I didn't really realize that before researching the business. That is a huge cost that might not be scalable. Uh, We talked about adjusted EBITDA. We talked about incentives. Let me give one number here. In the risk factors on their 10K, they said they had $2.4 billion in promotions in 2021 or 38% of contribution profit. The big question is what happens if that goes away? Does growth stop? Is that, you know, 
are those costs going to go away eventually? Um, they made poor capital allocation decisions. Ryan talked about that. I have a small one here of the risk of eventually having to pay app store fees. They're excluded from that right now. But if any regulation comes down the line where all apps basically with payments or people transacting on stuff have to pay, um, you know, Apple or Google a five to ten percent cut, the um, you know, not just games and dating apps and stuff like that, that could, you know, really hurt them. It's a low probability of happening, but if it does, it would really devastate the business. Um, okay, here's the last one. There's a lot, a lot of the low hanging fruit, I believe has been, um, well, I said eaten, but taken. I just wanted to keep the analogy within mobility and delivery. So for example, in 2021, 23% of mobility bookings came from their five biggest cities, which are Chicago, Miami, New York city, London, and Sao Paulo. Thinking about those markets, they are likely much more profitable because of the density compared to a city of, say, 250,000 people in the Great Plains or the South or anywhere else in the world. I have trouble equating this with the company's goal of expanding its margins. If your growth is coming from these areas, where is the margin expansion going to come from? Is it all going to be pricing power in these core cities or what? I mean, yeah, I think there's probably limited growth in terms of, I don't know how much users will grow. I don't think it'll be like some insane clip or customers, okay. but I mean, do they have to enter those rural markets? Well, here's the thing. They're in say Chicago. Let's use Chicago as an example. Is there anyone in that city that doesn't know Uber exists and wouldn't use it? And if they're not lowering prices, okay, how are you going to attract more demand? And if you're not attracting more demand, maybe you can raise prices to increase bookings. Sure. I, I'm sorry, but, I don't know if you need to attract more demand. Okay, but then where's the growth coming from? They, they're they outlining 20% bookings growth. I don't, I'm saying I don't know if they need to grow. I think they need to grow their margins, maybe not the top line. Well, uh, I mean, there's, that's not that's what that disconnects between. That's not what they're going to try to do. So... That's my low light for expanding into new, I don't know, increasing the, gross bookings. Yeah, it does. Like, I'm not sure what growth comes from. Maybe all that growth they're factoring is from well, they can price grow. increases yeah. or, or delivery plus freight. They can grow, but whether it's profitable or not, I think the smaller the city, the worse it's going to be. For the thing sure. is, they're running up against. They can't keep doing this because they have debt they're going to owe. That's true. I mean, yeah. I mean, they'll be able to refinance it if need be, but at what interest rate? Will they, or will the sovereign wealth fund? <laughs> like, I honestly, don't know. like every time it seems that they need money, they go to them. So yeah, that is a not. It's a small risk. You don't love to be associated with the Saudis financially. But it just yeah, I think they're kind of running out of time to figure out the profitability i think and they've talked about oh 2023 2023 it's got you know it's gonna we're gonna be just even up profitable but for the whole means. year yeah for the whole year but you can only fake profitability for so long especially when you have a levered balance sheet yeah let me i missed i don't think i said this year but they have 16 adjustments in their adjusted ebitda i don't know where i put that yeah so 16 right. i think that's a record Let's go bull case. What do you have? So my bull case is through advertising and the subscription service, they are able to maintain as the low cost provider for both supply and demand, which is, you know, drivers and riders and then delivery drivers and customers. 
that can insulate themselves from any competition in their core markets while also achieving the free cash flow margins approaching three to five percent as percentage of gross bookings. Um, this is the theory. However, after researching them, I think the key here is rationalizing the mobility market in the ways we've discussed, um, fully embracing advertising with Uber Eats. I kind of think that is the silver bullet here. If delivery isn't that good, they run it at cost and the advertising can be. It just seems like that can be very profitable because you could have someone like Starbucks throwing a ton of money at them and then continuing to go for rapid growth of freight or like we discussed, maybe spending it out. This could equate to, I think, solid long-term returns for shareholders at current prices at seven times contribution profit or 16 times theoretical key free cash flow there. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of the, the numbers I, I was throwing around. You need to see that free cash flow margin inch up, whether it's as a percentage of revenue or a percentage of gross bookings. Get inch higher yeah let's uh my, my bull case is that uber hyper focuses on mobility and delivery and you know maybe freight is has the potential that you talked about but this simplifies the valuation work for me so i'm going to say they hyper focus on mobility and delivery they mentioned in their investor day that they think they could reach seven percent adjusted ebitda margin between those two businesses as a percentage of gross bookings or sorry, you were about to say that. Yeah, yeah, sorry. As a percentage of gross bookings. So combined, delivery and mobility did about just under $100 billion in gross bookings this year over the last 12 months. And I think it was $18 billion in revenue. Um, so that would be, let's round, $7 million in adjusted EBITDA profits or just earnings that I hate calling it. It's adjusted EBITDA, let's just say. Um $7 billion, assuming no growth, sounds like they could grow those. I assume there's some natural growth that'll still happen from here. Fair. Uh, yeah, that's fair. At 10 times adjusted EBITDA, you'd get $70 billion market cap. That's okay returns. Yeah. We got to remember, though, that some of the corporate costs aren't included there. So like that yeah. difference between true cash generation and that 7% margin might be steeper. Like it might be steep. It might be down to 3%. Yeah. And the other thing is, let's assume that all the sales and marketing, which they, if I'm not mistaken, back out. Uh, I can't confirm that. But again, we can just talk about that generally as you know, yeah. further income statement. There's just so many adjustments. It makes it really, really tough to value. I, I don't know. I'd like to see. Here's the thing. If we wait until a full year of true cash flow, is it too late? Yeah, it's such a popular stock that everyone's already betting on that happening. Everyone already thinks that they're going to generate this cash, and it's almost like it's priced like it already will. I think that's getting into our more or less interested, but let's hit bear case. Pretty simple for me. The unit economics just don't work. They don't end up working. And Uber and really none of these other businesses in these industries have proven they can consistently generate positive cash flow for shareholders. If they haven't now, well, what are they at? $100 billion plus? run rate on gross bookings. If they haven't at this scale, when will they? Um, combine this with steady share dilution and Uber looks like a prime candidate to uh, what I like to call or what I've been thinking about is quote, running on a treadmill for eternity. They're working really hard. They seem to be extruding a lot of effort, but they're going nowhere. That's yeah, kind of how I think about it. That's kind of my bear case as well. The This trade sideways for five to 10 years. Um, Oh, right. You're talking about the debt. Yeah, I forgot it. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> like, let's say they're uh, okay. The bear case for me is that they generate 
not enough cash flow or, or a negligible amount of cash flow, and it all ends up going to debt holders over the next five to seven years. And it feels like this is one of those where it's profitability, like true, let's say 5% for cash flow margins, sustainable is just this perpetual what if, like, oh, what if they're able to get to blah, blah, blah margin? They just never do. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe the margins will be even higher than we think if they can right size costs even further. They get more rational there and maybe the stock will do quite well. But yeah, again, they say they're going to do that. It's kind of a watch what I watch what I do now, watch what I say. What they actually do is continue to just burn money. <laughs> yeah. More or less interested. Less. I'm less interested. I think it's summed up by saying they work way too hard. They have to convince everyone, their drivers and their, um, supply and demand to come back to their platform. They have to work really hard. Why would you go invest in that compared to Airbnb where the supply and demand just comes to them? It's just, why would you ever invest in Uber over Airbnb? I just, I know if Uber was trading at like a really discounted price at a certain price, anything's an investment, but I just don't understand because the marketplace doesn't seem nearly as high quality. Yeah, I don't Maybe, maybe. I don't know. It, it seems like a lot of people drive as sort of interim jobs. Sure. Uh, so, but onboarding costs. Some, I mean, there's probably some attraction or some sort of natural adoption from drivers. But no, I'm less interested. Also, um, investing doesn't need to be this hard. And I, I, uh, we like to have some sort of idea what kind of cash a company can generate. And I'm clueless when it comes to Uber. Like, yeah. And they, they don't get, they don't do a very good job of, of being transparent either. <laughs> they had 190 investor slides, uh, but I couldn't come away with anything concrete <laughs> on that investor day. It just, it's super comp. It's a very complicated thesis and it's too hard for me. <laughs> Yeah. All right. That sums up me as well. Stock for next week. It is my turn. We're going to play a little game for the next three times that it's my choice. I'm going to lay out the three that I want. I'm going to choose, but you can decide which ones we do or what order. All right. Here are the three companies. Yeti, Capcom, Warner Music Group. Ooh. Let's go. Just pick the one for next week and then we'll have the other two. Let's go Yeti. Yeti. Okay. We're talking we shoulders. I've got I've got a music related one in mind, so we should pair those up to go like right after one another. All right, beautiful. Uh All right, that's yeah. gonna do it. Make sure. Oh, we don't even have to say it. If let's just remind you, if you're listening on Apple Podcast as a CCM Plus subscriber, send us your email, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. Um, that will be in the show notes as well. We really want you to have access to the Substack. If you truly don't want that, that's okay. You don't have to send us an email, but we think it's a really, you know, it's a good part of the, the product. Good, that we're, I mean, it's value add, and there's no reason, I guess, not to have it. Yeah, exactly. And we think the conjunction of the newsletter plus um, what you're listening to right now can be great. You know, the combination is just being fantastic. able to look at something is probably, especially with all the numbers we talked about today. I think having the charts. Uh, will help kind of digest the information. Correct, the combination. All right, that's going to do it. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Don't think it'll be Uber, but who knows? We never know. You never know. <sighs> never All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. 
being some of the first subscribers on CCM Plus. We'll see you next time. Thank you.